Hello and welcome to another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd. I'm a writer, a broadcaster, an actor. Bon viveur, let's not just Bon viveur, bon vivant, bon whatever you want, really. Bon um, voyeur. Yes, <laughs> bon voyage, I'm off, bye. <laughs> and I'm here with uh, uh, Chris Budd, whose dulcet tones you just heard. Is, uh, anything else you want to add to that, Chris? Uh, <laughs> what a setup that is. Um, what am I, David? I'm. Uh, can I call myself an author? I mean, I'm, I'm, I think you can. I think you can. You've four, written books and you've had yeah, published, four so books I think in. I think. Um, and I'm also these days a business consultant, uh, helping companies to become employee owned. Fantastic. And also with us, uh, never let's forget the the legend that is Tom Morris, Tomo, our producer. Say hi, Tomo. Tell us something about yourself and what you've been up. To. Uh, hi guys, uh, Tom Morris, Chartered Financial Planner at Ovation and helping people meet their dreams. Client, meet dream, dream, meet client. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice bunch we sound. Uh, what you been up to then, Chris? Well, just recently, David, I came into just a, a little bit of money uh-huh. following the sale of the business. It, the payments are over quite a long term, but I got a little bit up front and I bought... I went a bit of a spending spree, but in that spending spree, I was very mindful of the financial well-being of what I was buying. I thought, I can't just go out and waste this money. It's, you know, A, it's taken a long time to get, but also how hypocritical of it would me would it be to go and waste it? So I bought a couple of things. One of them was, um, I've always been a bit of a Beatles fan, as are you, David. I am indeed, yeah. And uh, I bought the box set of remastered Beatles albums. All of them. Yeah, and it wasn't cheap, but oh, it's wonderful. I'm going to get so much joy out of that for so many years. So that was a really... (laughs) (laughs) Please, please, me, oh yeah. It sparkles. It really does. It's wonderful. Um, and then the other thing was my brother at the age of 52 is getting married this year for the first time. Um, and so I went out and I splashed out a little bit on some nice clothes for the wedding. Oh, I'm best man. And I, you know, that, I think they're good examples of, of well-being purchases, aren't they? Absolutely brilliant. And knowing your brother as I do, I'm sure he's. it's going to be a lovely day and that, that you'll all have a great day. Yeah, he won't appreciate the clothes I bought. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just thought they were nice examples. Good, good, good ways to spend a little bit of money. Excellent. Um, Also, Tomo tells me that you've been up to something else recently, that apparently you are now an agony uncle of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that, Tomo. Yeah, um, one of our industry uh, website newspapers called New Model Advisor has asked me to do a monthly column where young advisors write in and ask questions and I'm supposed to be answering them. Not quite sure what this is going to entail yet or what questions we're going to get, but that should be interesting. Right, so you're spreading your wings now you're no longer involved in the day-to-day running of Yeah, innovation. I'm doing some interesting things, yeah. I'm also a trustee of a couple of charities. Um, we've, we were talking about Happy City on this podcast one day, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a trustee of them, all about measuring happiness rather than economic growth, which is a really interesting subject. So we'll come back to that. And, of course, Penny Braun, uh, to whom the proceeds of the Financial Wellbeing book, which all the listeners will be buying, goes. Brilliant. So what are we going to talk about on today's podcast, then? So today we've got the second part of an interview I did a while ago with behavioural finance expert Greg Davies. Um, A line that we use often is that financial planning is very simple. All you do is you work out what you want from life and then you spend your money on that. But we always quickly add that that's, of course, a lot harder than it actually sounds. So Greg talks about some of the reasons for that, why it's hard to work out what we want from life, and then gives us some practical suggestions on how we can change our behaviour. Well, I really enjoyed the first part of the interview that you did with him, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. But before we come on to that, 
Time for uh, listeners' questions. Uh, what have you two guys brought to the table this week? Tom, have got anything? Yes, we mentioned a couple of episodes ago about getting a refund on power of attorneys. Well, I was asked by a listener, what on earth is that? And it just dawned on me that actually we take it for granted as professionals that we know what this terminology means. So there are two types of power of attorney. There is health and welfare. Lasting power of attorney is the full title. And essentially what that does is you're giving somebody ability, somebody the ability to make decisions on your behalf if you're unwell, you know, decisions about where you should be living, care homes, etc. That can only happen when you've actually lost capacity. The other one is called a property and financial affairs, lasting power of attorney. And that's all about somebody making decisions about your finances, your bank account, your investments on your behalf. That one can actually be in place before you lose capacity. But again, it often happens when somebody's unable to do it for themselves. But a key point here is it's a lot cheaper to get those in place before you lose capacity than actually trying to get something in place after you've lost capacity. I was going to say, so if you've lost mental capacity and are deemed as no longer able to making your own decisions about things, presumably one of the decisions you then can't make is who you're going to make your attorney to make financial decisions on your behalf. So how does that happen in that case? Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. So an organisation called the Court of Protection, which, as it says, they are the courts, and somebody actually provides what's called a deputy, and they act as your attorney. But you don't have an awful lot of control over that, and it's quite a costly process to go through, several thousand pounds, whereas setting up a power of attorney is a lot less than that, um, even including a solicitor's fees to, to help you with it. So, yeah, I would suggest the vast majority of people should be thinking about this, certainly those that are getting a little longer in the tooth, shall we say. Well, I would have, have to done, say... Have you done yours then, David? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do have direct experience of this, both with my mum, who, who had dementia, so my brother and I had power of attorney over her affairs. Then my late wife, Dinah, she, as we've discussed in other podcasts, she had multiple sclerosis, and so she began to lose capacity towards the end of her life, so myself and somebody else took on a power of attorney for her, and we're now similarly going through things with my partner's uh, mum who also has dementia. And so we've got various power of attorney issues to deal with. Uh, well, you're very well. excited. I should have asked you that question, <laughs> didn't I? But it, is, but it is important, and I would go back to the point that Tom made. Uh, it's absolutely vital that you, you, you see the signs coming and you don't put it off. Because if you do put it off and then have to go to court to get it done, it can be very complicated. It can cause a lot of family dispute and it can be hugely expensive. Mm, mm, absolutely. Wise advice. So do you have any more tips for us, David? <laughs> no. All no, the roles are getting mixed up. I'm getting confused. <laughs> well, I do know some stuff about some things. <laughs> right. So now let's move on to what is my favourite feature of the podcast, Titas Tomo, where we get a tip from our professor of parsimony, uh, Tomo, about how he can save us money. But before we do that, Chris, have you got any tips for us today that have, may have come in from listeners? I do. I've got one from the fast-becoming legend, that is Annie Shaw, at Cash Questions. Oh, good to hear from her again. Uh, I think we could actually rename this the Annie Shaw mm. section, to be honest. Um, it was good while it lasted, <laughs> folks, wasn't it? <laughs> this week, Annie says... Just returned some unused purchases made by my husband last week at a well-known store and bought them again instantly with a discount card, i.e. I walked into a shop and came out with more money than when I went in. That's absolutely fascinating. So they previously bought the items, took them back... 
husband presumably didn't use a discount card, forgot it okay. or whatever, or got, in the got, meantime she got one. Got the full money back and then bought them again using the discount card. Yeah. Well, that's very clever, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> very Annie. <laughs> Thanks, Annie. We've also had a lesson learned the hard way from at Martin Bamford, another old friend of the podcast, who says, can I share a recent money screw-up with you? I forgot to pre-book our airport car parking for our Easter holiday. Ten days cost me £205 instead of less than £80 if we'd pre-booked. Yeah, that airport car parking thing is interesting because airports just seem to be out there to fleece you at every moment. I heard somebody who runs an airport referring to it as a, as a shopping mall with an airport attached. Mm. <laughs> That's how they are these <laughs> days, isn't it? And the amount of money that they charge you for the car parking near us is Bristol Airport. There's loads of places that you can park your car nearby. I mean, my driveway, to be honest with you, <laughs> and, and charge you a quarter of the amount and, and drive you up there. So a little bit of research of off-site parking is also probably not a bad tip. I wish I knew this before because I'm going on holiday in a couple of weeks, yeah. flying from Bristol and using the airport parking. So if I'd known I could have parked here... There you go. ..and then. you were going to give me a transfer to and from the airport as well included, no... Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sadly, it's too late It's now. too late. There we go. All right, so let's come to the king himself, the master, the man that knows more about a tight ass than anybody else in the financial world, Tomo. What an introduction that is. <laughs> the titan of tight woodedness. <laughs> i got a question for you chaps. Do you like going to the theatre? Oh, yeah. I love it. Went just the other night. Especially if David's acting in it, yeah. Five doubly so. Do you like going to the theatre in the West End? Yeah. I do very much like it. Very expensive, though. Yes, I bet you don't like paying for it, do you? Not the amount you've got to pay. No. So I've come across a website called superbreak.com, and this was put onto me by Rumbers. Got to do that, otherwise you won't give me any more tips. (laughs) I said Superbreak. And what it is, is you can book the show, you book a hotel, and then for literally an extra couple of pounds, it includes the rail fare as well. Wow. So it's a massive saving because most of the time when you go to London, you jump on the train mm. and you want an overnight stay and and the uh, theatre ticket. So they group it all in at one and, and, it, and it saves an awful lot of money. I did a little check earlier on today, you know, 100 quid here or there. You know, it's not wow. insignificant. As you mentioned, paying for the rail fare can be quite expensive on its own. So, yeah, there you go. Superbreak.com. Well, I do from time to time go up to London for to do exactly that. So I shall definitely be looking at that. Do you have choice of hotels? Yes, you have choice of hotels. So list them. You've got three or four stars. Choice of show, presumably. Choice well. of show. Um, and then you just pop in where you're going from station, the station you're going from, the time you want to leave and go back. And it's all sorted for you. So, again, it's all in one place, which is quite quite neat and tidy <laughs> crikey if you save money I, I i think that must be a decent tip so if anybody has got any other tips that are hopefully a bit of fun but uh, but save a bit of money then uh, on twitter we are using the hashtag tight ass tomo so send them in and we'll give full contact details at the end of the podcast chris let's move on now to your interview So Greg Davis appeared on podcast number 25, where he talked about our decision-making process, concluding that we are, and I I love this this assertion that he made, that we are virtually hardwired to make bad decisions when it comes to money. We're almost, we have to, it's almost inevitable. He's an expert in applied behavioural finance and decision science. How about that for your title on your business card? They didn't teach you that one at school. (laughs) Go to see your careers master. What do you want to do? Well, I've always... 
So Greg is also head of behavioural science at Oxford Risk. He's a really smart chap. Uh, but actually what he says is deceptively simple. It's, you know what? You know when somebody is so brilliant that you take ages to get your head around what the, and then you, oh, 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 I see. You know? And it just seems so obvious when you've got your head around it. I listen to Greg's interviews two or three times and they start to really make some sense. So let's have a listen to my chat with Greg Davis. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. One of the things I'd like to talk about, Greg, is objective setting. A lot of the stuff we talk about as financial planners is working out a financial plan to get to your objectives. But you've got some ideas on that, haven't you? There's a discussion about this notion of determining your objectives for life. The sense is in order to plan for your future, you know, we need to figure out what it is we want. And then we work backwards from there and we figure out what we've got. And then we try to connect the dots between the two. And one of the most complex things there is just figuring out what we want. Most of us don't really know what we want. And the problem is that we don't know in quite a subtle way, in quite a deep way, because if you asked me what I wanted and I I was put on the spot and forced to come up with a list of things, I probably could. But it's interesting to ask whether those are genuinely the things that, that I want or I'm just making up a bunch of things that I can rationalize in order to tell you something that I think you want to hear. And so there's this potential gap between our inability to genuinely introspectively assess our our true wants and needs for long-term hypothetical futures that we actually don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Not only that, but by the time the long term arrives, I might not want then what I want now. So there's a huge focus on the moment in in this of um, goals-based investing. You know, in order for us to do this, we need to focus on objectives. We need to help people to ascertain their goals, and then we need to write them down, and then we plug it all into a model, and it spits out the right investment solution. Now, I think there is value to that. There is definitely value to getting people to think about their goals, but there is also an awful lot of danger in forcing people to be over-precise about things that actually they are fuzzy on. And there is a certain value to that fuzziness because the fuzziness is what enables us to be flexible and adapt to the future. And the minute I take my my comfortable fuzziness and I, I write it down for a financial planner in a great deal of precision, firstly, that precision is completely spurious. Um, secondly, it starts to... Um, reduce my mental flexibility, my psychological flexibility to move and adapt. And more than that, once that financial advisor starts building my financial solution around that and programming things around that, it starts to reduce my um, my financial flexibility. So my worry about a lot of this goals and objective stuff is the natural response to that leads to an over-engineered solution, an over-specified solution that actually takes something very important away from the individual, which is the optionality of me being able to flexibly shift my preferences as my circumstances change. Greg, I am currently champing at the bit because you're pressing so many of my buttons with what you just said. (laughs) I I abhor the word goals. I think it's a terrible word because it's so finite. If your goal is retirement, when you reach that goal, you're still alive. You still got to do stuff during the day. Um, so actually, having a, having one fixed goal is is not helpful. I don't think. And I I love that phrase, comfortably fuzzy. I'm using that one from now on. If that's all right, I'm nicking that. <laughs> Stay comfortably fuzzy. That's great. In a sense, I do think that financial planning needs to be thinking about 
goals and objectives. We need to be having the discussions with people. But what I'm focusing on is that there are better and worse ways of having those discussions. And because people in the financial planning world tend to be highly numerate and want to give, you know, number-based answers to people, um, they, they tend to reduce that, that fuzziness. The big issue I have with a lot of the, natu- the normal approaches to goals-based investing is this notion that you should put money in pots. I'm going to set up 30 different goals and I'm going to create 30 different pots. Because what I have done then is I've taken this overly precise description of my comfortable fuzziness and I've really started to take um, blurry mental divisions in my mind and I've hard-coded them in an accounting structure. And that leads to so much rigidity and fragility of someone's financial solution that it becomes a real problem. And so, you know, I might have I might have a desire at some point in my life to buy a sports car. And so I set up my sports car fund and I put most of our channeling money into the sports car pot. And then, of course, I get married. I have some kids and, you know, the sports car goes out the window from any sort of financial reality and it slips down my priority list. But because I've been collecting this money in a sports car fund, I become psychologically and financially reluctant to repurpose that money to where it's more valuable. So it leads to a system that gradually gathers inefficiency as it moves on and makes the whole system incredibly sclerotic. So that approach to goals-based investing, let's let's put things into, divide things into pots, I think is completely barking up the wrong tree. I mean, it should be said that there's a continuum of, of goals, right? So there are some goals where you might, where it might be more valuable to be precise about them. And those are goals where they are extremely high priority they are um, almost certain to happen, and when they happen, you know when they're going to happen, and you know the magnitude of this. So the stereotypical example is um, money for kids' school fees. Um, you're, you're, it, it's, it's a plan that happens at a defined time. It has a fairly fixed cost, and it's, it's important to you. So that's the sort of goal where you can go, okay, this is a sort of cash flow worth structuring into a cash flow type model. The rest of the goals are largely contingent, and they're contingent on, you know, what person I am when I get there. They're contingent on what situation I'm in when I get there. They're contingent on what the world looks like when I get there. So don't overplan for them. And and in a strong way, I think what we need to help people to buy is not goal achievement. It's optionality. It's the ability to adapt as your life adapts. So in a sense, what we should be helping people to do is to grow their wealth generally so that they can repurpose it in a flexible way as the world changes and as they change. There's a, um, a guy, I, th- I think, in the States, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has a podcast called The Investor Field Guide. And he recently interviewed a man called Boyd Varty. Now, Boyd Varty has nothing to do with investment. He is a, a South African naturalist game lodge owner and, and tracker, basically. And it's interesting because I, I grew up in South Africa and the, the pretty much the last thing I did before I left South Africa was to finish my formal training to be a foot guide in dangerous game areas, which is um, was great. I always thought I might go back and sort of finish the, the training and then I came to the UK and kind of never got around to it. And throughout my life, I've, I've kind of it's been one of these episodes that has had no connection whatsoever with everything else I've done in my life until I heard this podcast because – Boyd Varty starts talking about the notion of tracking animals, you know, in the, in the bush and having to be acutely aware of the environment 
have a sense of where you were going, but never knowing quite what was coming next. Um, and he, he spoke of it about as, as something, I think the phrase he used was exploring the emergent future. And so what you want to do is you, you don't want to have over-specified goals of what you're going to do when and where you're going to be and what you're going to achieve. But you do want to know vaguely which direction you're heading in. And this is your motivations point. You want to know what it is that, that, that motivates you and what is important to you. And you want to be prepared for what the world throws, what, you know, what, what the emergent future throws at you along the way. And it was, it was fascinating hearing him talk because there were so many parallels between this apparently completely disparate issue of how you track animals in the bush with this sort of issue of financial planning and goals-based investing. Um, and I, I strongly recommend listening to that. It's a very compelling episode. Thank you. We'll, we'll put that into the show notes of the podcast. That's great. <laughs> Greg, I'm a cricket coach, and I've been coaching the Sorry same... to hear that. <laughs> I've, been, I've been coaching the same group of kids now for five years, okay? For five years, I've been asking them to get their foot towards the ball. So, ball goes on the offside, you get your foot out towards it. Then I've said, well, you're not getting your foot out towards it. Put your head towards it. And then I'm thinking their feet will follow. After five years, they're still not doing it. Yeah. Now, I find this absolutely quite fascinating. They just cannot change their behaviour. I'm searching for ways. We all make the same mistakes repeatedly, don't we? We all go yeah. through life keep, and we keep doing the wrong thing and we know it's the wrong thing, but we can't change our behaviour. Have you got any tips for how we can change our behaviour? It's, it's one of the more dispiriting findings or themes to come out of the behavioural literature that merely understanding where you do silly things or where your behaviour needs changing is, is seldom enough to help you to change it, particularly at moments when you're stressed or under pressure. So, you know, reading reading about behavioral finance isn't necessarily going to lead you to maybe a, a better investment decision maker. The next step from that, uh, you know, so that's the, the education. Can we educate ourselves out of the problem? And the answer is only to a very small degree. What we really need to do to, to change our behavior is to build for ourselves and use what I call decision prosthetics. So we need to build tools and systems that can guide our behavior in the moment. And it's a bit like building a, a kind of decision-making Iron Man suit for ourselves. We know that we are likely to make uh, bad decisions at all sorts of times. But also, the fact that we know we want to change our behavior means that there is a period of time before the decision comes that we are able to reflect on how we would like to behave when that moment arises. And the fact that we can do that means we can start to build ourselves structures that will kick into play when that moment arrives. Now, some of these might be rules that we build for ourselves um, that we can hopefully gradually build into habits. Some of them might be you know, more physical prompts. So, you know, I know that I want to, uh, I don't know, rebalance my portfolio every quarter in a specific way. So instead of relying on me to do the right thing every three months, I might just set up a completely automated system that takes this, this uh, notion that I've designed when I'm in a period of calm reflection. And I, what I actually am doing is I'm taking decision-making capability away from myself in the moment by making a whole bunch of decisions ahead of time. So to stop us making bad decisions, we take our ability to make that decision away from ourselves. We take it away from ourselves 
in the moment. Or replace it with... We replace it with a decision that's yeah. made ahead of time. So another example to this, just really, really simple example, is the power of regular saving. Um, yeah. It's only really basic, but rather, you know, I keep spending too much money. Well, if you set up a regular amount into, I don't know, cash ISA or your pension or what have you, you have less money to spend. You then won't spend it and you won't buy more things that you don't need. Exactly. And crucially, do that at the beginning of the month after your paycheck lands rather than at the end of the month when you don't have anything left to save. <laughs> yes, very good. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but we are at that basic level, aren't we? We know that as humans, we we are an, unable to follow our own best intentions when the moment comes. So stop thinking we can do it. I mean, the evidence is pretty obvious that we it's pretty you know comprehensive that we can't. So what do we do? Let's find ways of giving our our best selves and baking them into some system, that means that the system will do will be the person that we want to be uh, when that moment comes. It's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. So these things, this is not rocket science, right? It's 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 not difficult to understand. However, it is difficult to do because it requires real commitment. It requires real self knowledge, and it requires taking the time and effort to build and set up these structures. And I'm wondering, Greg, whether this is something that financial advisors should be learning. If we can help clients and give them these rules, then actually we could be making a big difference to their financial lives, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's something that I occasionally refer to as a, an investment constitution, and it might be different for every single individual. But the idea is, can you help a given client? Firstly, can you can you help them to know themselves? Can you help them to explore what are the bad decisions they're most likely to make? Where are the moments where they're most likely to be stressed or to be making emotionally-led decisions. Uh, where are they buying this emotional comfort for themselves at a more costly way? And then in that period of calm reflection, and ideally what you're talking about here is joint calm reflection because you're trying to coach them through a process, help them to establish a set of simple rules that can guide their future behavior in ways that will start to address those points. And I wouldn't start with trying to do anything too comprehensive. Just start with a few simple rules and then develop it over time. Don't, don't try to go, here's, a, here's the list of the 50 things that will turn you into a perfect investor. Let's try to do all that at once. Chip away at it with accessible things that are easily put into practice and then use that as a platform to do the next thing. Because like, financial, like, like money, the, the compounding effect of good behavior uh, increases, you know, gets to exponential good over time. Yeah, the compounding effect of good behaviour. I like that. That's that's definitely a good a good takeaway for people. So um, a, a lot of what we've talked about then is um, just some basic principles of money, really, but backed up by really good solid research. Um, so, is there any one last thing that you would uh, suggest to people that they could take away, not just about investing, but about money in general and how they can view money to make themselves happier, not just wealthier? There's, a, there's an awful lot of uh, good empirical evidence on what it is that we do with money that makes us more reliably happy. I mean, a first response of that is one we've already covered, which is try to try to reflect on what your real motivations are. Try to treat money as a means rather than than an end. But that's a very it's a very abstract point. Some some more practical ways are the evidence strongly suggests that spending money on experiences rather than things, leads people more reliably to consistent happiness and well-being and satisfaction over time. And those are particularly shared things. So if you want to be use your money to make you happier, spend it on 
holidays, going out for dinner with friends, spend it on uh, experiences that are ideally social, but at least that uh, are things that, that you enjoy. Stop spending it on handbags and cars and shoes and things. I mean, these are all necessary things, but the incremental happiness you get from an extra pound spent on a luxury item is far less than the, the, the satisfaction value you get from a pound spent on something you enjoy doing, an experience that's novel, something that, that start ticking off the bucket list, basically. Greg, that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for joining us there. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. As ever, fascinating stuff from Greg. What did you make of that, Chris? I think he's just cuts to so many important things in life. I really love what he says. Um, we don't know what we want, especially in the long term. I've talked before about my dislike of the word goals and um, or the concept of goals, which is such an obsession in so many business gurus. You know, you've got to know what you want from life. Well, actually, I've got no idea what life's going to be like in 20 years' time or even if I'll be here. So how can I set paths to it? So I just really like the idea of, of not being too specific about what you want. And also being prepared to change direction when you get there. So you think, well, this is where I'm going. And then you get there and you think, well, actually, maybe this isn't where I want to be now. So I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And as financial planners, we, we're always talking to people about um, about goals and, and uh, setting goals so we can create a financial plan to it because it's easy for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but actually, that's not necessarily what will help the client. And he talked about the fuzziness, having fuzzy goals and, and uh, repurposing money, which I think is a great phrase. So uh, you think you're saving up for one thing. But actually, later on, you think, actually, I don't want that. We'll use it for something else. Just, just touching on that and some stuff that you know, what we do at Ovation is rather, I think there's a lot of baggage around the word retirement, for example, is everyone sees, right, it's almost like a goal, stop, what do we do next? If you rephrase it, because actually, it's the point at which you have financial freedom or you're working because you want to, not because you have to. It's, it's quite a vague point, but it means that you've got flexibility. You can still go on and do everything you want to do, but it just gives you an idea that you don't have to if you don't want to. Well, that's so interesting because I am now getting, you know, I'm 63. I don't mind sharing that with the listeners or I will be by the time this goes out anyway. Uh, and uh, so I'm getting closer to the point at which uh, I might think about retirement. Well, I am thinking about retirement, but it used to be for me a, a more finite thing. It would be, well, I'll get to that stage, I'll get my pension and then I'll stop and then I'll kind of sit around watching daytime television or, or, or whatever. Which you were acting in. <laughs> you were watching reruns of yourself. <laughs> yes. but, but clearly now I don't, I don't feel that. I still enjoy my work very much. I'd love to be in a position which I'm getting close to where I can be slightly choosier about when I work and what I do. But I, th I can't see a time when I'll go, well, I want to stop working because actually I enjoy my work and, and I enjoy the, the benefits that working brings me. Keeping it fuzzy. Yes. <laughs> one of the things, one of the five key parts of financial well-being that we talk about in the book and in this podcast is having financial options in life. And that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Mm. Is, is keeping the future fuzzy so that you can have financial options so we can go in different ways. I love the Boyd Varty stuff as well about exploring the emergent future. What a great expression that is. So not determining where the future is going to be, but I also really liked his decision stuff about taking decisions away from yourself. We said in the introduction that we are almost hardwired, according to Greg, to make bad financial decisions, in which case, don't let yourself make the decisions. Yeah, it's a really good point. I love what he said about automation. So start making decisions when you're in a good place and when there's not a lot of stress, stress around and then just 
set it up so the decisions are made automatically for you and you know, savings is a really good example used there. Just do it at the start of the month and hey presto, give it a bit of time and you've really kick-started your, your financial plan. And then the last line that I love from, from Greg, and this could almost be the title of this podcast, simple but not easy, which is a great expression, isn't it? Well, there you go. So hopefully you've uh, found that uh, interesting. I know we have. Uh, always a pleasure to listen to your interviews, Chris, and I'm sure we've got some other really good ones coming up. But for now, that's all for this current edition of the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Thank you.